0: you're listening to the ticker podcast from ir magazine a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations hi everybody exchange traded funds may be the biggest phenomena of our long bull market And there's been plenty of debate about their effect on underlying stocks. On today's program, we'll hear from a market structure analytics expert on how he sees ETFs and their role in driving your stock's trading and price.
1: It's just uh, fascinating to me how the market has become such a great place for, for trading things and such a poor place for investing in things.
0: Coming up, a conversation on the evolution of capital markets... And the IRO's core job with modern IR founder and president Tim Quast. This is important, you won't want to miss it. But first, this week's ticker news update. North American companies continue to pull up the rear when it comes to online sustainability and corporate responsibility reporting. Only 45% of firms in North America feature an ESG section on their website, according to IR Magazine's latest research report. That compares to about 70% of Asian and European firms. Shareholder rights were top of the agenda during this year's U.S. proxy season. But support for proposals in the category has dropped. According to shareholder voting analyst Proxy Insight, investors submitted 138 shareholder rights proposals at U.S. headquartered companies in the first half of 2018. But only 12% of proposals passed. That's down from 28% last year and 40% in 2016. And finally, Banco Santander, Iberdrola, and S led the pack at this year's IR Magazine Awards Europe. Garnet Roach reports from London.
2: Hi Jeff, so you can hear the last of the awards being announced in the background. Everybody's going up on stage, all the winners from tonight. And it seems that three was the magic number at the IR Magazine Awards Europe 2018. We've seen three companies, Banco Santander, Iberdrola and Lanxis, each take home three awards from tonight's Black Tie event at 8 Northumberland Avenue in an unbelievably hot and sunny London. My newcomer, Norwegian Borregard, my Norwegian friend did tell me how to pronounce that, I didn't think I could do it justice, uh, took home the Best Overall Investor Relations Award in the small cap category. The European IR community has come out in force to hear host Stephen K. Amos announce which companies have been named top for IR by the European investment community and which were voted best across nine categories by this year's six strong team of judges. In the end, Oliver Stratman of Lancus has been named Best Investor Relations Officer in the smaller mid-cap category, with the company also taking another of the night's most coveted awards, Best Overall Investor Relations in the mid-cap category. Lanxis was also named Best in the materials sector. Iberdrola was another three-award winner, taking home the Best Overall Investor Relations gong, this time in the large-cap category, making it the second year in the row that Spanish utility has taken home one of the top awards on the night. Bilbao headquartered firm also added Best IR in Western Europe and Best IR in the Utilities Centre to its trophy cabinet this year. Rounding out the three for three is Banco Santander, another Spanish giant, which took home three awards in the awards by nomination categories. IR Magazine's European judges this year voted the <laughs> This year voted the Spanish Bank, which recently became the first company to use blockchain for AGM voting for Best Use of Multimedia for IR, Best IR During a Corporate Transaction and Best Investor Event, an award which was jointly won with Hugo Boss. The Rising Star Award, given out to a newcomer to the profession, went to George Menehm of Royal Dutch Shell for his winning over of the city while actually being based in the Netherlands and having no previous experience in IR. As you can hear in the background, it's all been rather quiet and it's time for the European IR community to carry on the night in style.
0: It's no secret that passive investment has become wildly popular in today's stock market. And as money continues to pour into these disruptive investment vehicles, we are, clearly, entering a new and uncharted market environment. So, what does the new model market mean for investor relations? Well, time was, IR meant telling the story. But with passive investors, often no one is listening. Speak to the app. Will ETFs put IROs out of a job? Today's guest doesn't think so. But he does think they will forever change the IRO's role. Tim Quast is president of Denver-based market structure analytics firm Modern IR. He believes if IROs want to stay relevant in the new algorithmic order, a grasp of market structure has got to be a core competency. If you
1: use the adage that you follow the money it would appear we need to follow ETFs and figure out what they're doing.
0: Yep, this ain't your granddad's stock market. We need to talk about ETFs.
1: ETFs have become 50% of market volume, and that figure comes from uh, the NYSE ARCA trading platform, which is a big listing venue for ETFs. And and that's just taking uh, the trading volume in ETFs and and, uh, totaling it and comparing it to total market volume. But it tells you how influential they become. If something is half of all the volume in the markets, it must be a big deal. So once upon a time, half the volume in the market was coming from uh, active investment focused on the story. And you go back to the 1980s, before the markets were electronic and connected, before there were any exchange-traded funds or high-frequency trading. Now, the vast bulk of investment in the market was fixated on the fundamentals. And today, you look at uh, the volume. We've mentioned volume. Then you look at what where people are are, are choosing to put their assets, whether they're institutional or retail investors. Uh, the vast bulk of inflows to investment vehicles are going to indexes and ETFs. And this year, the the total assets under management in in uh, passive vehicles, has surpassed the assets in actively managed uh, funds. And then the Investment Company Institute tracks the creations and redemptions in ETFs. And this is going to dovetail into what people don't know about exchange-traded funds. And I'll set it up in a, in a second. But I think these are good backdrop facts to okay. know. So the Investment Committee Institute tracks these creations and redemptions, which is how uh, money moves into and out of ETFs. And it's astonishing how big they are. Hundreds of billions of dollars of ETF shares are being created and redeemed every month. And if you compare it to the net inflows to conventional investment vehicles, it dwarfs those figures. About $50 billion net. If you, if you track what has flowed into and what has departed uh, institutional investment in, in uh, conventional vehicles in 2018, year to date, is about $50 billion. And, and yet there are $3 trillion of ETF creations and redemptions, the vast majority of those in U.S. equities, but that's sort of an all-encompassing figure. So once again, it appears this is a big deal.
0: What, what's your sense about IR people? Do they – have they clued into this, or so are they still telling stories?
1: The, the IR community has become acutely aware of the presence of passive money because shareholdings show it. Hmm. So we're aware that passive money has become enormous because BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, which are the big three – of, uh, of passive investors in about 80% of that market, and, and they have a combined north of 13 trillion of assets under management. Our top 10 shareholders of nearly every company in the market now—all 100% of our clients—that's <laughs> that's the case. So it's become apparent that passive money is a big deal. And those, to your point, that, those 13 trillion of combined assets. Don't listen to earnings calls if it's passively managed, and there are some exceptions, so I'm generalizing here. And they don't use the sell side. They're not using sell side research to make decisions because that's not how they make decisions. They follow asset allocation models. Fundamentals might be part of a model, but they're not the core driver. They're not trying to buy things for their differentiating outperforming features. They're trying to buy things that have shared characteristics And that's the mean, the benchmark. It's the exact opposite of active stock picking. And I think people are becoming aware of those things. What they don't know about ETFs, however, is that they aren't pooled investments. We're led either directly or indirectly to, to believe that exchange traded funds are like an index fund that trades like a stock. And so that then causes us to believe that there are a, a 1940 Investment Company Act regulated investment pool that gathers resources from investors and takes those resources and deploys them proportionally into a set of stocks, except it's not true. That's not how ETFs work. ETFs operate under exemptive orders from the SEC that everybody else who is 1940 act registered doesn't get. And uh, and they, they they are tax efficient vehicles. If you read an ETF prospectus, 75% of it is a tax document. Hmm. And they go back to a 1982 IRS ruling I mean, that was the beginning point. It was in the U.S. market, and it's, of course, spread, and they're, they're all kind of bond and commodity and other sorts of ETFs. But it comes back to this idea of what are called in-kind in kind exchanges. In real estate, they, it, you can't do them anymore, but it used to be you could do what's called a 1031 exchange. So I could have a house in beverly hills let's say that was worth three million dollars and you have an apartment building in kansas city that's worth three million dollars and we could swap them tax-free right there'd be no capital gains on that because they are of equal value well that's the that is the underlying principle of exchange traded funds when you buy blackrock etf shares let's say you go out and buy uh you know five thousand shares of ivv the uh s p 500 Uh, ETF from BlackRock. Does BlackRock get your money? No. The answer is no. BlackRock is not managing your money. BlackRock is not managing anybody, any retail investors money. They're out there presenting themselves as an investment manager, which they are. But what they're really managing is collateral that has been exchanged by large brokers and those brokers customers for the right to create ETF shares. That's how they're not pooled investments. The original idea behind an ETF came out of State Street. And the guys that did it were commodity traders. And they came up with this idea of trading commodity warehouse receipts because they knew the commodity business. And they used an analogy to describe these. They said, you know, there's, you've got a, a warehouse with commodities in it. Let's say it's silver. You have a warehouse full of silver, And people own that silver and you're storing it in the warehouse. And then more money comes along and says, we'd love to have some access to the silver in the warehouse. And they say, well, we don't have any silver, but how about if we give you a receipt that is is of equivalent value that says you have have exposure to the assets in the warehouse. And then we'll just trade that because that's a lot easier than moving physical silver around. That was the basic idea. But you can already see the problem that could develop. I mean, what if you don't expand the amount of silver in the warehouse, but you keep selling receipts on it? You can overexpose the underlying asset class. And one of the great troubles in the stock market today is that the number of public companies has gone from about 8,000 in 1998, bloated by the dot-com bubble, certainly, to 3,480 today. If you take out all the multiple classes of stock, the closed-in funds, the exchange-traded funds, and you just look at the number of underlying stocks, that's all that's left. And the S&P 500 companies have bought back trillions of dollars of their own stock, $1 trillion worth last year. So the number of public companies and the total share count have been declining. Yet at the same time, we've had trillions of new dollars rush into the equity market via exchange-traded funds. Because they're substitutes. So here's how they work. If BlackRock wants to create, because they go out and market IVB, let's say, and so there's demand for this S&P 500 fund called IVB, and investors want to buy it. But so, BlackRock goes to what is called an authorized participant, which we don't even know who they are. They're identified in general terms in one place by BlackRock. BlackRock says they are firms like Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, et cetera. The people you think of, they tell us that 10 of these large brokers uh, have 82% of the market and there are 42 of them total. That's it. So 10 of them are handling almost the entire market. So let's suppose it's Morgan Stanley. The so BlackRock turns to Morgan Stanley and says, we need to create IVV shares. So we need to collateralize that creation. So we need a basket of stocks worth $12 million because they only create and redeem ETF shares in large units of 50,000 to 100,000 shares in most cases. And so I'm just saying that's about $12 million. So BlackRock says, uh, so Morgan Stanley says, okay, we've got, we've got a bunch of Facebook. Uh, Would you take that? Because Facebook is substantially similar to the S&P 500. It is a component. It doesn't have to be the basket almost all ETFs statistically sample, quote unquote, the index. They don't have to own it at all, all of it. What you see posted daily that exchange traded funds supply is the index they license. The index will have a certain composition. It does not mean that Morgan Stanley is going to follow that. They're going to get what they can get, what they've got. They can borrow it. They could substitute cash. Ultimately, it has to be good collateral. So let's suppose, continuing our story that. They say, here's $12 million of Facebook because we have a lot of that. And Morgan Stanley says, or BlackRock says, great, we'll take Facebook. And now you, you, Morgan Stanley, can create and sell $12 million of ETF shares of IBV. So then Morgan Stanley sells them, let's say, for $12.1 million. They mark them up. Now, how do these firms both make money? Well, Morgan Stanley made money by supplying $12 million of collateral to BlackRock for the right to create $12 million of IBV shares, Mark them up and sell them to you and me. Then BlackRock makes money by baking into each of those shares a little fee, right? But they don't, ha- they don't pay any commissions. They don't pay any taxes. It's a tax-free event. That's why ETF costs are very low. Everybody else in the market, T. Row Price, actually has to buy stuff. They actually have to buy assets. They can't do an in-kind exchange of assets one for another, And this is how ETFs are kicking everybody's behind. (laughs) It's why they have taken over the market. They are exempt from things that everybody else has to do. Mm. And they solve a huge problem for investors. There aren't enough shares. I've had this discussion with a number of folks on the buy side, including the head of electronic trading for T. Rowe Price, who said it's very, very difficult for us to find any positions of size. Every time we're in the market, we disrupt the market structure. We have built very complicated technology to help us find hidden liquidity, because it's so difficult. But guess what? If you can just buy infinite supplies of ETF shares that have the same exposure, but don't involve actually buying and selling the asset. Wow, what a great thing. And that's why it has exploded. That's what has happened. It is a substitute. It's very much like a mortgage-backed security.
0: So, so you sorry. Think, just okay. to back up. So, for the big guys, then they can go and do this, and they don't have to worry about moving the price of the stock the more they buy.
1: Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Just buy IVV. It's it's easy to get. You can get it in immense supplies. You could even yeah. say say you're say you're uh, a closet indexer, quote unquote, meaning you're an active stock picker, but you've learned that it's better off to just follow the indexes. Well, you could be, let's say, uh, Fidelity. Fidelity decides, look, we're just going to buy a basket of, of, of uh, ETFs. Well, they could go to Morgan Stanley and say, look, if we give you $12 million, can you get us a bunch of ETF shares? Well, sure. Morgan Stanley can create them. So, so Fidelity gives them the collateral, which then Morgan Stanley turns around and gives BlackRock, and then BlackRock lets them create IBB shares, which they provide as a swipe markup to Fidelity. It could happen. There's nothing in the, in the prospectuses that prohibit it. In fact, BlackRock's prospectuses say, beware, the firm could be its own customer. So BlackRock could take collateral from its index funds and provide it to Morgan Stanley for an exchange to get IVV shares back or vice versa. It can loan shares to Morgan Stanley that Morgan Stanley could supply as collateral. I'm not saying that happens all the time. I'm saying all of these things are theoretically possible and not prohibited, and therefore, I'm sure they occur. I had conversations with, I asked the folks at BlackRock, had a, had an, a, a detailed conversation with one of the key people on the BlackRock ETF creation team, and they, uh, they confirmed all this. They said, could Morgan Stanley just borrow it? And they said, well, sure, that's, Black, that's Morgan Stanley's problem, not ours. We just want collateral. I said, could they just give you a check? They said, sure, but we take 105%. <sighs> You're going to give us cash. We're going to over collateralize it. But this is what's going on.
0: So there is good news and bad news out of all of this. The good news is for the market is that it solved a huge problem. It allowed a lot more money to chase the same assets. The bad news is that that state of affairs tends to create what? Inflation.
1: It causes markets to perform better than what the underlying fundamentals would support. And if you look at the overall global economic growth and you look at the performance of the equity markets, there's a huge disconnect between the two. You follow the money. If there are trillions of dollars of these creations and redemptions, it clearly has an impact and it works great on the way up. So long as more money is coming in than departing, this will create upward momentum as we saw throughout 2017. In February of this year, for the first time since 2008, we had net redemptions in ETFs, only eight billion dollars but it was the first time that outflows exceeded inflows and what happened to the market it corrected and it points to 8 billion right and in the in the in the month of February there were almost 900 billion dollars of creations and redemptions and what I mean by that is that if ETF shares are created uh, there are more shares and if ETF shares are redeemed it goes the opposite way in a redemption Morgan Stanley will go buy or borrow ETF shares and return them to BlackRock and BlackRock will give them collateral back. Whatever it may be, could be Facebook shares, could be something else, Mm -hmm. but it will be collateral of equal value. Then the brokers will short that thing, maybe buy puts on the index that it's in and sell those shares. And then the whole market goes down. And then the process repeats because now all the capital gains has been washed out,
0: right? People say that event in February was was because of, People were spooked by the the word inflation.
1: That might contribute to some very short-term trading, but that's not the cause of the big swoon in the market. The big swoon in the market is too much money trying to get out of too few goods. That's what happens. If you have a bunch of people in a gymnasium and one exit and somebody pulls the fire alarm, everybody will jam into that exit. Well, if you have all kinds of money exposed to the same underlying assets, here's something very important to know. The Russell 1000, the 1000 largest stocks from about 2.5 billion in market cap to 900 billion in market cap, that is 95% of all market cap and all volume. Huh. The Russell 2000 is only 5%, slightly, slightly less than that. The Russell 3000 huh. is 99 point whatever percent of all market cap but it's heavily top-weighted. And why is that? It's because indexes and ETFs want size and liquidity. So they are all grossly overexposed to the top 1,000. There are more ETFs than there are the 1,000 companies. There are 2,000, over 2,000, well over 2,000 ETFs. But there are 1,600 U.S.-focused equity ETFs. That is more than the 1,000 companies. All of it is concentrated in. And then you've got active money owning stocks, you have passive index funds owning stocks, and you have exchange traded funds creating exposure that could be collateralized by the very same ownership that is already held by somebody else. So if you have three ownership claims on something, it works fine going up just as it did in mortgage-backed securities. That was fine so long as underlying real estate appreciated because you could take a set of mortgages and say, let's cut these into tranches And instead of having one mortgage, we now have the capacity to sell that to five investors, Mm -hmm. collateralizing Mm -hmm. and selling a derivative. And it was awesome until real estate stopped appreciating. Then everything that was a derivative got marked to zero, and we lost half the value of the the, real estate, uh, residential real estate. And that was only 25%. Uh, Mortgage-backed securities were 25% of the the overall uh, real estate mortgage business. So if you look at ETFs, they're double that, 50% of market volume. And I'm not, this is not, I'm not crying fire in the theater. I'm saying we should be very cognizant of how these instruments work because it gets to the motivation. The motivation of the two parties to exchange traded funds is not investment. The two parties are the creators like BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, and the authorized participants, and they both have a a central concern. BlackRock wants to get rid of capital gains. If, for instance, the tech sector goes up 30%, they're going to want to get out the imputed capital gains by putting all that stuff or some part of it, some statistical sample, in the redemption basket that they will trade to brokers in exchange to redeem subshares out of the market. Then they get a step up in tax basis when they bring them back. They don't have to pay capital gains, but you and I do uh-huh. if we own those stocks. Any active stock picker is going to have to do that. So then the motivation of the broker is merely to make money on that transaction, which is an arbitrage transaction. I want to get rid of this thing and, and get collateral that gives me a profit. That's it. And those are the cycles that repeat. So tech has swooned well, tech is 25% of the S&P 500. It is vastly overexposed in ETFs. That's why the tech sector corrected. All it takes is a smattering of those things, and we can see the patterns. We can see these relentless patterns in the in the analytics that we provide. We build systems that look for those patterns of behavior, and they're starkly apparent around the Russell rebalances and the S&P 500 rebalances, which both occurred last uh,
0: and so and, and, and let me just let me just stop you there, so like the link between, between how ETFs are going to affect the underlying stock is this motivation. This is the crux of it all it's that, It's that arbitrage it, thing right that is that is making these these cycles at least and and the volatility
1: Precisely right. that is why it's
0: so important it is there you know to me
1: there are two pillars of understanding that that ir people public company executives and boards should understand about exchange traded funds number one they're not pooled investments they are a substitute and number two the motivation of the parties to the primary market the secondary market is people who consume etf shares but the parties that are actually buying and selling them blackrock and their authorized participants or vanguard and their authorized participants, they do they do not have an investment motive they have a tax efficiency motive and an arbitrage motive. Uh, you know, Goldman Sachs has said publicly, as did J.P. Morgan, that you know, on their trading desk, just ten percent of their trading now is fundamental. The vast bulk of it is ETF market making. It's a low risk, high profit opportunity. And look at the trading returns they're getting. You can look at the quarterly results from these big firms that we can theorize are the big authorized participants. And they've done great. That is vital to understand for public companies.
0: But, but yeah. those two, those two points you, you mentioned, they also affect the way IROs do their job. I mean, or, or should view their job anyway. right? Exactly right. It, it absolutely, if you're, you're the, in the IR chair, you're the
1: chief intelligence officer for the company. You should understand the market that is the that is the whole reason for your job. I mean, if you're a private company, uh, none of these things exist. As a public company, it's vital that you know how the market works so that your board and your management team are well-informed and have accurate and reasonable expectations for how the market may reward you or punish you and how it may affect the value of your shares. And ETFs, to me, are the linchpin because that's where the money is. So it is, it's incumbent upon our profession to understand it. Of course, then everybody wants to say, well, what do we do about it? Well, we can question why the SEC <laughs> gave, gave them such wide leeway to do what nobody else does. I can't understand why the T. Rowe prices of the world don't don't call take them to task and say, why have you given one investment vehicle uh, an insurmountable competitive advantage over all the others? That's why their money went there. It's not for some, you know, because they're, you know, they're, they're, they're beating everybody. They have advantages. So, yes, I believe that, if that is, it's the IR uh, profession's responsibility to know that.
0: So, to recap, a new market structure characterized by an infinite supply of ETFs, but only a finite supply of the underlying stocks. It's a combo that Tim says will always lead to a singular motive, arbitrage. And a situation where a lot of stuff seems to be going on behind the curtain. I figure Tim and I covered about 10% of that. But the question remains, if all the money is doing the equivalent of shopping at Amazon, then what's the IR job for? Tim is convinced there's a bright future ahead. But only for those who adapt.
1: You know, ultimately, the audience for IR and public companies is the money. And the job of IR is to understand how that money works. I mean, we all recognize as IR practitioners uh, what drives fundamental investment. We understand the difference between a value investor and a growth investor. I used to school my CFO as an IR guy I'm, look, we're going to go see. Uh, this unmanager, and, and he's a value investor, so we're going to emphasize our value drivers. If we're talking to growth money, we're going to emphasize our growth drivers. But it was, it was a core competency of IR to understand how to have a differentiating thesis and how to emphasize value and growth and attract a diverse palette of relationships. That continues, and we just have to recognize that it's not the only thing that goes on anymore, so it can no longer be 100% of the job. You're still going to continue to cultivate long-only active stock tickers, but the job becomes more expansive. Just as Amazon has made data analytics, big data, tracking trends uh, and drivers part of the retail job, it becomes part of the IR job. We have to track trends and drivers. We have to quantify the effects that these things have on valuation and trends. We need to know what they're doing before important news or events that could affect value so we don't do things at the wrong time to the degree that we can control it. Ultimately, it means IR becomes more data-driven. We just adapt to the modern era. Who cares what the money's doing? So long as somebody in the organization is understanding it, measuring it, and proactively communicating it to the management team and the board so that everybody's well-informed. That becomes part of the core IR competency. And to me, that's an exciting opportunity. You know, it's a great opportunity to become more valuable. We see it in our client base. The IR folks who help boards and management teams understand how the market works become more valuable, more listened to, more included. They become the right-hand people of the management team. Well, that's great for our profession. This isn't the death of our profession. This is the evolution of it.
0: Okay, so it isn't the death of our profession. But what about capital markets? All these comparisons with mortgage-backed securities were making me a tad nervous. This new model market, bottom line, good, bad, neutral?
1: Well, it's a great question, and it would depend on who you ask. If you, if you ask the, the trading community, uh, they consider it a substantial uh, improvement over mm-hmm. the old model. Right. But the trading community isn't the investment community. The trading community sits between the investors and public companies. So, if the trading community loves it, it must mean that it's good for intermediation. <laughs> and you don't want an, an over an over intermediated market. Tells you it's not efficient. The amount of arbitrage will tell you about the amount of inefficiency. Mm. If you have ten or fifteen percent arbitrage, you have a pretty efficient market because eighty-five to ninety percent of what is occurring is. Uh, is uh, finding the market working well and prices to be correct. If 50% of the market is arbitrage, it's a very inefficient marketplace. So the average stock in the Russell 1,000 trades in 182 share increments, that is horrible for somebody trying to buy $100 million or something. So it depends on who you ask, right? To me, the best kind of market is one with stable prices and size. We have the exact opposite of that. We have highly unstable prices that change 250 basis points market-wide on average and are in very small increments. It's like saying, look, you can, you can buy this car a bolt at a time and it only costs you a penny per, t- per trade. See, it's a really low-cost market. No, it isn't. It is ridiculously expensive. I would rather just pay $500 and get the whole car, right? I'll pay you a $500 commission for the car. But if you charge me a penny a bolt, how do I know whether I'm getting a good deal? And as the seller of the car, I don't want to sell it a bolt at a time. I'm in the business of selling cars. And if I'm a buyer of a car, I'm not in the bolt buying business. <laughs> so the market from that standpoint doesn't serve either the buyer or seller well, but it sure serves the intermediaries.
0: So what are you exactly saying? Has, uh, has the market simply lost all its effectiveness?
1: Well there's you know there you know we still have the greatest capital markets in the in the world here in the US and uh, we have global markets that have adopted many of these features they appear to work but if we step back, if we're honest about the data here is the truth we don't have enough IPOs to pre- to replace M&A this was a pretty good week we had 13 IPOs but all they're tiny little IPOs that are going to be in the backwaters and eddies they're not going to be part of the thousand. And we lose more companies to m and than we gain every year by IPO. So the market is shrinking. We've lost 50% of public companies, which tell, uh, the number of IR jobs has been cut in half. And, and private equity has vastly surpassed capital raising mm-hmm. in the public markets. Right. And there's a clear reason for it. it, it, it you know, take Spotify. Spotify, you know, in over 10 years, did 18 trades in effect. They did 18 rounds of capital raising. There was no intermediation, no high-frequency trading, no statistical arbitrage. There was no spread between the bid and the ask. The buyers and the sellers agreed on a price, and it was the same price. And they were able to raise all the money they needed in that fashion. And then they could IPO. I could call it an exit. It was an exit strategy for all of that money that had performed privately that excluded. All the small investors. We want to have a marketplace that makes it possible for everyone, from the, from the retail mom and pop to big institutions, to participate in the growth of public companies. We no longer have that kind of market. We have a market that becomes an exit plan. I just got off the phone talking to a company that IPO'd uh, in February. It was an exit strategy. It was a, for for the corporate owner. Well, it used to be – I mean, if you look at the Microsofts and Intels, you know, Intel did a $7 million IPO okay. adjusted to, the, to today's dollars, and it, it was $50 million. Uh, and, it, you know, they were doing just a few million dollars in revenue then. And today, their, you know, their market cap is whatever whatever it is, 250 billion. And uh, all of that growth has sure. been in the public market. That, to me, is a great market. Mm-hmm. Whatever we were doing then – was working better than whatever we're doing now, because that's not occurring anymore. And and so all of that job creation, that opportunity for our profession, our arcane uh, little investor relations profession, is being harmed by this. It's uh, So I'm not a fan of the market, a marketplace that makes that makes speed the priority. I don't think that that should be the case. If we want to have a market where people gamble and arbitrage and trade stuff, fine. But we shouldn't subject investors who want a good aggregated marketplace where they know they can meet some other investor uh, who is a seller uh, uh, without interference and, and uh, uh, shill bids, uh, that should be possible. I'll use an analogy. You know, if you go to a Sotheby's auction, you can't even get in to bid on a painting unless you can prove you've got the worth to buy it. And yet here in the equity market, we let any machine in that can price the stock in 100 share increments who don't want to own anything at the end of the day. They want to trade all day and by 3.45 close out their positions being net zero. Well, they're 44% of market volume, but it's the equivalent of shield bidding. And that's how we had the flash crash in 2010. All the shield bidders left and the market imploded. Well, that's just redeem. Why would we have a market that has that kind of potential for collapse? I mean, the prudent would look at that and say, well, if it happened there, it can happen again. And why would we want to have a marketplace like that? <laughs>
0: Tim, do you have a lot lot of money in cash at the moment? (laughs) As the market has gone up, I
1: have proportionally shifted. Yeah, okay. half and half. I'd rather rather, uh, buy a bunch of stuff that is appropriately discounted than lose a bunch that's overpriced.
0: So you can gather Tim isn't a big fan of the status quo. We started spitballing. I asked him what it might take to revive the primacy of the old-fashioned stock picker.
1: By my way of thinking, what would have to happen is that passive money would have to be discredited, right? If if that happened, then you would see a resurgence of stock picking, but under rules the reason stock pickers cannot succeed, and I want to make sure I answer your question, but, but I think this is an important concept. The public companies and IR people should recognize that the objective of stock pickers is that loggerheads with the structure of the market. The market forces ch- prices to the average. How? Well, all stocks have to trade between the best bid to buy and offer to sell. Well, what is in between? The average price. What is it that indexes and ETFs try to track? The average price. All right, so the rules have already given an advantage to, an, to vehicles that, that have the additional advantage in the case of ETFs, price efficiency that the stocks Stock pickers are looking for outliers. They want to outperform the benchmark. Indexes and ETFs do not. In fact, they get rid of things that aren't tracking the mean. If you outperform the mean and you're in a basket of stocks, you're going to be sold off because you're now skewing the performance away from the mean and indexes and ETFs are paid to and required by their prospectuses to do what? Track the mean. That's why they want their trades in the, in the closing auction to get the reference price. So the very, the two things are a direct, direct competition our people are out there saying, look, we're better than everybody else. Here's our story. Here's why you should invest in us so that our stock separates from everybody else. And then you'll be overweight in all of the market cap indexes, which will sell you and undermine all the work you did. All right. So until that structure changes so that those conditions are no longer the case, that we aren't forced to trade at the mean. I have long argued that we should get rid of the NBO, NBBO, get rid of what's called the trade through rule. The trade-through rule says I cannot continue to trade here at the NYSE if there's a superior price at the NASDAQ. It forces me to go somewhere else. Well, what if I just want to buy at the price here at the NYSE because I'm happy here? I don't care if I'm getting a lesser price than the NASDAQ has. I'd like to get 500,000 shares here at the price that works for me. Well, why is that against the law? You can't do it. You can't trade at a price you want. You can only trade at the price set by the fastest order. It's a horrible structure. So until that changes, it's going to be tough for stock pickers. However, having said that, if, and we will, we, are, we, we, we had unprecedented monetary intervention in global markets by central banks. Therefore, you would expect unprecedented runs in risk assets. And we've had them. We now have the longest bull market in history right? We hit it in June this year. (laughs) So it will end. It's going to end. I don't know when, but it will because history tells us all bull markets come to an end. And because this one will have been heavily fed by derivatives, substitutes that added exposure to a finite underlying asset class, the correction will be extraordinary. And that will probably discredit passive investment and cause us to revisit the ideas that we developed That said, we're going to let ETFs have an advantage over everybody else. I can assure you that when a bear market comes, the fact that we have so much overexposure in derivatives is going to be problematic. And how do I know that to be true? Because it's been true 100% of the time in human history. I don't believe this will be an exception. I hope that uh, IR folks look at this as a great opportunity to be more then, you know, the, 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 to- the storyteller and the meeting setter. we really begin to become product managers and chief intelligence officers. And there's, it's a really fun, fascinating, interesting thing to do. Um, and I realize it's not good, you know, data isn't for everybody, but I hope that's one. And then number two, I, you know, I really wish that our profession would align with long only money with the big investors and make a case for a market that's better for what we're trying to do. That would make sense, but we've never done it. We have never done that as a profession. And here, you know, NERI is neutral on this fee pilot program where over $22 trillion of buy-side assets have lined up in support of it, and the exchanges are opposed. You'd think we'd be on the same side as the people we're talking to, the investors, (laughs) You know? Why are we why are we kowtowing to the intermediaries who are there to profit on our presence rather than aid our efforts? I'm not knocking the exchange and got good friends there and I don't want to get any hate mail from folks at the NYC have that. Just that uh, it's a, it's a head scratcher to me because it's not logical. We should be on the support of the money, on the side of the money.
0: Is, there, is it going too far to say that maybe you could sort of have an investment proposition where somehow you work to attract fewer ETFs and that, and that you, you, you say to your long-only people, this is our strategy, and we're, 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 I don't know how you would do that, but, but you know, and, and we still have a story, and, and, and this is, you know, how, how we're sort of pitching our, our, our business here. That's just... You could...
1: It, you no, know, it's a great, it's a, it's, it's a really interesting thought, uh, Jeff. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's some creative thinking. And, I, you know, I'd say, yes, we could do it. It's just that it would take such bold action, it probably never happens. But, you know, I'm just saying this, you know, in, in bemused fashion. But if we all, all the public companies adopted like Liberty, Liberty Media, you know, this bizarre structure of all kinds of multiple ass classes of stock. Uh, then we'd all get kicked out of the indexes and ETFs because they don't like that. It's not good from a governance standpoint. And that would mean we'd get more active investment and we'd do less mean following. Uh, there's no question that being in a bunch of, ind- you know, investments that want you to track the mean is going to make you trade more like the average. And if we wanted to get away with it, to get away from that, we do those things we don't like. Um, uh, or you could, you know, we could, all the companies could do a massive reverse stock split. So we all trade at $300,000 a share, like Berkshire Hathaway Class A shares. And, uh, there'd be no statistical arbitrage or high frequency trading. And all of the owners would be long term committed money, but nobody's willing to do those things in grand fashion, you know, because the exchanges would go broke. They, they would disappear if that happened because there'd be nothing to intermediate.
0: Tim Quast. Thanks for your time and joining us on the Ticker Podcast.
1: Well, I hope there's something useful in there. Thank you for spending a chunk of your time to do it, too, Jeff. It's very good.
0: I've been speaking with Tim Quast. He's the founder and president of equity market structure analytics firm Modern IR. You can read his white paper, How ETFs Foster Cycles and Volatility in Your Stock, on our website. And if you've got any thoughts on what you've just heard, send us a voice memo to editorial at irmagazine.com. So, by now, I expect it's much clearer how your job has become a lot more data-driven. Now, would you like to discover even more about the life-changing magic of technology? Thursday, July 12th, in London, at the Gherkin, we've teamed up with cloud-based IR Gurus Q4 another in our popular breakfast briefing series big data automation artificial intelligence predictive analytics find out how you can use all that and more to help free up time to spend on your strategic priorities visit ir magazine's website to request an invite oh and it's free and before we go let me remind you that our yearly survey of global ir practice is now open minutes to fill it out, and you might win one of 100 annual subscriptions to IR Magazine. Check out irmagazine.com for details. And that's this week's Ticker Podcast. Thanks for listening. In Montreal, I'm Jeff Cossette. You've been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com
2: or download the app.